Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Co. Hey, Sean. How's it going, fellas? Doing well. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hey, Guy. Hey. Hey. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Mark Bett and William Gabula. If you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show. We're going to be briefly talking about what we've each got going on in our own shops. So let's get right into it. Guy, you've got the first question. Oh, I do. Super. That's just super. Uh, (laughs) This is from Glenn. And he says, gentlemen, I have many slabs of eight quarter maple that have been air drying for a couple of years after I milled them. I know how you feel about slabs, but don't worry. I plan to dimension these to six quarters and 10 inches wide with the aim to build a dining room table approximately eight foot long by 40 inches wide. For legs, I'm thinking of the panel style that are situated about a quarter of the way in from each end. I use a crossbeam between these two panel legs, but does the top panel require an apron or any additional underpinning or support structure? Thanks for near 70 shows of insights, Glenn. And Glenn, just so you know, this is show number 70. No, it's not. 71. <laughs> just missed him. Then how come it says show number episode number 70? You put that you're on still there, one guy. behind. <laughs> you're still one behind. <laughs> yeah, I know I put the one. So I can net number them however I want to? No, you're the one. You just number it that way. So what? next next week, I'll number it number 72, and it'll be actually number 72? Yep. That's correct, yeah. Okay, I'll do that. Anyways, <laughs> that's a really good question, Glenn. And actually... We, Sean and I were talking about this just before mm-hmm. we we hit the record button. I build a lot of tables like this and I see a lot of tables like this go out of our shop. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is, is that wood, whether you like it or not, is going to move and it's always going to move across the grain. So, you know, it's going to move across the width of the table. So if you got 40 inches wide, especially if you know like six quarter, it's, it's going to move a solid at least quarter inch right. over the course of a year, even in a, a environmentally controlled building. Mm-hmm. So when you put those legs on each end, make sure you put slots, you can pin it in the middle, but let's say put, you know, three on each side, pin it in the middle, and then put slots on the outsides so that panel can move. It'll also hold it flat. Now you're asking, I guess the biggest question is, is that, you know, you're putting a a cross beam between the two panel legs Mm -hmm. for stability, but does the top require an apron or additional underpinning or a support structure? I'm assuming he's referring more to the actual physical structure of the table. Mm-hmm. My answer to that is maybe. Mm-hmm. Glenn or Sean, what do you think? No, I'm, I'm, let me finish. Let me let me let me say why I say maybe. It depends on how that beam is attached. 
if it's like a really strong, like a, a couple pieces of wood laminated together where you've got, you know, close to like a four by four going across it into big timber frame style legs and joinery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be fine. But if it's like flimsy kind of stuff, no. It's got to be big and beefy to do that. Otherwise, you have to put something closer to the top to help prevent all that thing, prevent the thing from racking. Mm-hmm. So, what, like do, if, what do you what, what do you think, Sean? I'm trying to picture what he's talking about when he says a panel style. Is he talking about like two big chunky legs and a thin panel that goes between them? Like, yeah, like a panel. Yeah, that, that's what I think. I like a frame yeah. and panel door, but yeah. you know, okay. Um, so, but does the top panel require an apron? So the top panel, is he saying like at the top of the panel? So imagine, imagine a, a two legs that are panels, like a big frame and panel on either side. Okay. okay? And there's a, a beam that goes across it towards the bottom, like a stretcher, like a cross beam. Yeah, like in the middle, sort of. Well, no, more either in the middle or more towards the bottom. Are you talking about that's connecting the two panels, or are you talking about yep. the panel itself? Yes, yes, connecting the two panels. Okay, so he's asking, does he need a top apron underneath to connect them, just like he does at the bottom? Correct. Yes. Oh uh, man, that is that's a good question, and I, I yeah. I'm going to agree with what you said. It depends on how <laughs> it depends on how chunky. <laughs> Your uh, beams are. Yeah. Um, it really does, I think. Mm-hmm. How long is it? Eight foot. Eight foot. Um, it's a big table, man. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I would, I mean, just knowing me, I would probably, I would probably add one in there. Being yeah, that you're long. No, you're, you're not going to see it. No. No. And it, it sure as hell can't hurt. Right. Yeah, that, right. that's a, that's a big table. That's a good size table. It's not huge. That's a good size table and that's wide. And I would, I mean, why not? And, and like you said, uh, guy, if, if it were a big beam going across the center where you could actually see it, absolutely fine. But I think with that big of a table, you need some sort of support underneath that wide and that big of a table. And so having, having it right underneath supporting the tabletop, yeah, I think you need it. Yeah, we build a lot of these things and they're they're you know, for something that big, the most common thing I see is an X style leg mm-hmm. and a, a a beam going across the X. But these are steel legs. And these yeah. these steel legs for an eight foot long table, yeah. they come in fifteen inches from the ends, typically. So mm-hmm. they're pretty big and they weigh, you know, like 400 pounds they're big beastie things man and nothing moves and do you do you guys put a beam between the two no okay no it's just got the beam that goes between the x's yeah Uh, oh where the where the 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 x's uh join Mm -hmm. so like in the middle of it yeah like you would hit your shins on them if you kicked real hard yeah 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 that's very typical for us Mm-hmm. My desk uh, that I built, uh, a Nakashima style, is 
pretty similar. Not, it's not similar in that they're panels, but I've got the the two leg assemblies and only a beam going across the bottom. And it, this is probably, I don't know, 28 inches wide and I don't know, four feet, four feet long, a little longer than that. And it racks. So I can only imagine that something that yeah. big is going to rack even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And putting two pieces really does help. You got us to think like, you know, oh, this is a really bad analogy. But I would say like, you know, you're clamping something down. You actually have to put two clamps down because it's just going to pivot off of one clamp. Right. Um, uh, so that's a really bad analogy. Uh, but <laughs> well, I think that we covered it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure you're sure he, he gets it. Yeah. Yeah. It really, like I said, it really depends on how beefy those panels are at the end if it's like a timber frame style where they're four by four legs and it's a big beam going across and it's big and beefy i think you're okay but if you're going for more thin and delicate you need to put something up top to help prevent racking right and you're not going to see it yeah yeah so it should be fine yeah all right who's got the next one that would be sean that's right All right, this is from, let me do this one from Mark. So I've been trying my hand at shellac with mixed results. I put on a coat, I put a coat on some soft maple, sanded to 220. I decided I didn't like it, and so I wanted to sand it off. After waiting several hours, while it looks dry and it feels dry to the touch, when I sand, it's clogging up the sandpaper. I then tried waiting overnight. Same results. Is this normal? Some details. This is a two pound cut of amber shellac flakes, freshly mixed with denatured alcohol applied with a blue shop towel. Temps were in the low sixties to high fifties with humidity to 40 to 50%. Shellac flax don't get old, do they? Is it possible that the denatured alcohol doesn't have a high enough percent of booze in it? I did buy it at the big box store, Mark. Well, I think uh, you, you kind of touched on a couple of ideas that I had in, in your response. But yeah, shellac flax, shellac flax, wow, shellac flakes, say that 10 times fast, shellac flakes, flakes. do get old. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and one of the ways to tell is it, that it won't dry completely hard enough for it to sand smooth and, and, and running into the same results that you kind of have here. Um, the first thing that I would try is you know, moving that piece into a warmer climate, uh, perhaps in the house and see what it's like after a few hours of that. Uh, another thing that you can try is taking that two pound cut of Amber shellac and mixing it 50, 50 to make it a one pound cut mm. and apply it to a sample board that you sanded up to two twenty as well and see, does it dry? Can you sand it back in a few hours? Surely you wouldn't have to wait that long with the one pound cut, but can you sand it back and it not, and it be dust instead of the, uh, instead of the chunkiness that you're getting now from the, from your sanded piece. Um, if it looks like even if you cut it back to one pound cut and you're still getting that issue, it sounds like your shellac flakes may indeed be bad. And, um, you want to get some, some fresh, uh, flakes. Um, but I've had this issue before and and my problem was that I was just impatient using too thick of a cut and it was too cool, which it sounds like what you're doing here. It's not necessarily too thick of a cut. I've used a two pound like for an initial pass uh, before I then use a thinner, thinner cut. But if you're waiting overnight and you're still having this issue, it, it sounds like it could be that your flakes are indeed uh, kind of old. But, you know, you can always uh, take the piece inside and let it warm up a little bit. 
and, and I'm going to come back with a second question for Guy and Hui. But before I do that, I'm going to pass it off. What do you guys think are his issue with uh, with this shellac finish here? Uh, do you think it's bad flakes? Think it too thick of a cut, too cold? What do you all think is going on? It really depends on, for me anyways, it depends on what grit of sandpaper you're using. So if yeah. I, sometimes I put this stuff down, I usually use a pound and a half cut. I don't want to talk about temperature or humidity right now. But I'll put put that down. I'll let it sit for, you know, an hour, and then I may knock it back with, you know, one fifty, and I don't get any pilling, which I call pilling, yeah. on the sandpaper where you get these little nubs, which you can just flick off with your a fingernail. But I don't get that. So if I did the exact same thing and I did it with, let's say you know, 320 or 400, I would get pilling on the sandpaper. And I, I usually chalk that up to the finer grit that I'm using. And I usually use the higher grits when I get to my like third to four, third coat plus. I usually put down one coat. I don't even sand after it. I'll put down another coat, let that dry. And, and I should uh, wait after the second coat and then I'll sand it back with like a 150 and then I'll put other layers on of shellac, but I'll sand it like 320 or 400, depending on what, what sandpaper I have handy. But I almost always get pilling and I just, like I said, I just knock them off and I just keep going. I, I don't, I ignore them. And my, my shellac may be bad, but I've never had any issues. Other than that, when I get pilling, I, I wait. Like to me, that means it's not dry enough. And when yeah, I, but if when you I wait, do, if you wait overnight and you still get it, oh, then you got problems. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, really, and that's what he said. I think so. <laughs> if you wait overnight, yeah. See, I'll wait overnight and I'll get problems. It just depends on what grit sandpaper I'm using. Was yeah. what I was trying to say. And even if I'm using like a 400 grit sandpaper. And it starts to pill a little bit. I don't care. What is the shelf life of shellac flakes? Because I've had some really, really old shellac flakes. I can't say it. Uh, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> at least you can say, at least you can say phylac, phylac shakes. Phylac shakes. Um, I've had shellac flakes in my shop for a really long time, and I'm still using them. Yeah. <laughs> if it's some dry, of my, some of my flakes are like three, four, five years old. Yeah, exactly. I keep them in a bag and I keep them in a door in a drawer so it's a dark environment yeah. so UV light can't affect them and they they stay dry. So I sort of feel like I always get a little bit of pilling or piling whatever you want to call it on on sandpaper just a little bit but it's it's never bothered me. It's not like it it's not like it clogs the paper up so much that now it's starting to scratch the surface that I'm sanding, you know? Yeah, you'll get a couple little pills on there and you just pop yeah. them off with the, I, with the fingernail. But I've never had shellac that's gone bad, so I don't even know. <laughs> what I heard is when shellac goes bad, it won't dissolve properly. Okay. And, and then it won't dry properly. Is that correct, Sean? That's what I heard. I mean, like you all, I mean, I have had flakes, old flakes, not dissolve. And I was like, yeah, I'm not even going to try it. But, you know, if it if it's dissolved... I always use it and not ran into an issue um, with this because when I, when I put my first coat on, 
you know, I, I rarely get the the little whatever you all call it on the sandpaper, but I tend to wait until it's hardened enough and dried enough that I don't get those big boogers on the sandpaper is what I like to call uh, it. There you uh, go. I Shellac like boogers. Shellac like boogers. That's going to be the title of this episode. Don't eat them. <laughs> um, but, you know. <laughs> hey, so I've got a question for you guys. Um, and maybe more so guy, because I think you've actually mentioned this before. But pure grain alcohol versus denatured alcohol. What's the benefit of the pure grain alcohol using it for shellac? proof? Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard some people say it's pure. The only difference, the, the, what denatured alcohol is, it's just grain alcohol and they put poison in it. Yeah. So people don't drink it. Um, but that's also additive. So the, there's some people that are purists that say, don't use denatured alcohol. I use a 190 grain alcohol. It'll, it's a clearer finish. You'll never go back to it. I think the biggest advantage, to, and I have used 190 grain alcohol before. The biggest advantage of it is before I started applying the shellac or mixing the shellac, I can do a couple shots and get pretty happy. <laughs> and that's why the, the shellac boogers don't bother you. Exactly. I'm like, shellac boogers, that's ah, okay. I'll just drink some of this. <laughs> you flick them off. <laughs> yeah, I'll be fine. Yeah, what is it, Everclear that they people say yeah. they use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard. I've heard. A, you get like a clearer look or something. You know, it just I don't know. My eyes are so old and crappy. I I couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, I just especially I just, after a couple of shots. Yeah, I've just heard it, and I always wonder, like, so why? <laughs> anyway, well, so uh, let's let's talk for just a second. How do you remove a bad shellac finish? My guess is. Break out a rag with some denatured alcohol, wipe it mm -hmm. down as, as much as you can to sort of dissolve that and get it as thin as possible, depending on the piece. I mean, you know, this is about all you can do and, and then let it hopefully dry with the stuff removed as much as you can and then, you know, scuff sand it and then just apply whatever you want on top of it. Yeah. Because, because why we, everything sticks to, sticks shellac. to shellac and shellac will stick to everything. Yeah. yeah. There you go. But Outside of that, what are some... Put me on the spot, man. Well, you know, I got to keep you on your toes. Outside of that, what are some uh, what are some ways to remove a, a bad shellac finish if it's not drying? I, I, I would say just the way you just explained it. Yeah, can't think of anything. I would, let, I would let it sit a day. I would sand it back. I don't know if I'd even bother with pouring denatured alcohol on it or whatever. No, I put it, it on a rag. It whatever, however you want to apply it to, to soften up. I would just sand it back and be done with it. Well, there you go. Take a couple shots. Don't sand it. <laughs> just let it be. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, I'm going to pass it off to Hui for your first question. All right. So this question pertains to track saws. Uh, there have been a couple of new uh, track saw manufacturers that have come out. And so Phil is asking, Hey guys, I'm looking into buying a track saw along with corresponding work table, more specifically the Festool TS 55 and MFT versus the Craig adaptive cutting system. I'm hoping you all could give some insight when comparing and contrasting these two and whether the Craig system, while more budget friendly sacrifices quality or is lacking in any way, love the show and look forward to hearing your thoughts. Now, I have put my hands on the Craig track saw. I haven't used it with the adaptive cutting system, 
but I actually haven't used it in any form of application. I, I went to one of these, uh, what is it, woodworking shows, and it was there, and I tried it out. Well, no, I didn't try it out. It, I just held it in my hand. and my. <laughs> so you've not yeah. used the saw or the system. Okay. Yeah. No, no, okay. no. <laughs> but, my, but my impressions of it from, from holding it is that it seemed lighter than a TS-55. And I, you know, Guy, you've mentioned this before, that you put a lot of credence and a lot of weight to weight. Um, and it just seemed a significantly lighter than the TS-55 that I have. And the other thing that I noticed is that it looks very similar to the Grizzly and the Shop Fox track saw. And there's a European rebranding uh, Shep or Schleppek. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Right. Right. And they all look really, really similar. And I'm curious if whether or not, because I think. Sean, you used to have a Grizzly track saw, yeah? Yeah, I had the smaller one that was terrible. Trash, garbage. At least <laughs> mine was. How but, you really feel? But, they ha- but I think the I one it. that you had was like, what, what, like a four and a half inch blade or something like that? Yeah. It's yep. a really small blade, right? Mm-hmm. I had yeah. the smaller one. They had two um, different sizes. I don't know. That that that's a hard one for us to answer because none of us have actually you know used the system. Putting us on but, the spot with this one, we. But, yeah. But, <laughs> but again, I really think it's the same saw as the Grizzly and the Shop Fox. I think it's probably the same components. It's just rebranded, and they're just buying the license to use that motor and that housing, and just putting a different shroud and cover on it, and putting you know Craig across the name of it now now their adaptive cutting system you know that's really honestly it's it's quite a knockoff of the mft you know with with the track system and everything it looks exactly the same thing as an m uh, but i mean all the track saws look the same but i think that the adaptive cutting system is really just a knockoff of the mft i don't think any of us use the mft in that fashion correct where you're you've got the um, the tracks on the outside of the MFT. I know, guy, you have an MFT, but I don't think you actually use that, do you? No, like the um, I use I use the Quas Rail yeah. dogs. I prefer that too. I think it's I I, I know that uh, Eric Levenger is that his last name? Anyway, Eric at yeah. Poplar Shop, he uses Eric the Clevenger. heck out of that, like mm-hmm. a lot. I don't, you know, for me, I probably wouldn't go with the adaptive cutting system. If you want to go with the track saw, that's, I think, you know, give it a try or at least talk to folks who have, have used it. But I probably wouldn't go with the adaptive cutting system. I would probably just go with an MFT style top and use Quaz Dogs personally, because I think I gives me a little bit more versatility and I feel like the, the hardware and everything is kind of a little bit difficult to calibrate and it's a little finicky and whatnot. I, I didn't particularly care for it on the, at least the MFT. What are you, what are y'all's takes on this? I would probably recommend to Phil to, to talk to people that own the Craig system that did not get it for free <laughs> and get right. their, and get their opinion on it. I've never, I've never seen it, never touched it. Never. I don't need, I don't own an MFT. I've never even talked to anybody that owns the Craig adaptive cutting system. So I have no comments on it. Looks nice. I like that you can fold the table up and 
That's all I know about it. But I would talk to somebody that didn't get it for free from Craig because they gave them away like, you know, Christmas presents when they were first releasing it to a lot of people on social media. So that's not to say that their opinion isn't valid. I'm just, you know, I would talk to some folks that own it and have used it for a while and get their feedback because I think there are pros and cons to every system and price mm-hmm. is a big one, but right. that's kind right. of my opinion on the matter. So yeah, I've, I've never, I've never used the system, the Craig system. I have used the Festool system. Mm-hmm. I have the Festool system. Um, I have seen the Craig system in use. Yep. Not physically use it, but I have physically watched it being used. Mm-hmm. It seems like a nice enough system. I, th- I think that they did a good job of knocking off the fest hole. <laughs> well, no, it is what it is. It, it, it is. It is. They, they right. knocked off the fest hole, and that's fine, and I dig it. Um, and it is a budget option to the fest hole. Right. So you, I guess I look at it like this. It's, it's like, okay, I'm going to buy a router. Mm-hmm. You can look at a Festool OF1400, which in my opinion, I don't care how much that thing is. It's the best router I've ever used. Oh, yeah. I love it. It's just awesome. Well, other than the little tiny DeWalt, but that's a different animal. But compare that to, let's say, a DeWalt router. Does the DeWalt water router work? Yeah, it works well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But is it as good as the Festool? Eh, not really. Sure. And it's, it's kind of like the same thing with the Craig system that works well. It does what it's designed to do, but it's going to be, I don't want to say lesser quality. I want to say it's manufactured from less expensive parts. That's a nice yeah. way of saying it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they're trying to hit a price point on it. Right. Again, which is fine, but you have to go into it with with eyes wide open, mm-hmm. knowing that that's what they're doing. And, and honestly, that's with any tool purchase, not just yeah. this tool purchase. Yeah. And everything's relative. People, you know, you, if you want to compare it to cars, which is an analogy I always do. So you compare the Fest tool to, let's say, a, a BMW and the, the Craig is a Chevy. Well, they're both good cars. I'll get you to point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And wow, the the BMW is tens of thousands of dollars more. Yeah, that's a big difference. But when you're talking the difference between the Festool system, which with an MFT may cost you a thousand bucks, maybe twelve hundred dollars, versus the Craig, maybe half that price. I don't know what it's it about, is. About uh, for the table system. But this is with all the bells and whistles, right? Uh-huh. So it's about four hundred dollars for the table system, and about three hundred dollars. So we're looking at so let's you know, say seven seven hundred dollars. Yeah, seven. So let's just say it's half the price, just okay. for for grins. It's half the yeah. price. You get what you pay for, right? And right. seven hundred dollars, relatively speaking, is it is it is it a hundred percent more? Yes. So it seems like it's more expensive, but how often are you going to make that purchase? And you really—that's something you have to decide for yourself. Right, right. So, very, very go. true, very true, very true. Well, uh, hey, you know, we might not have answered, given you a clear-cut answer, Phil, but at least you know you can go with it. Like we said, eyes wide open. Is it a bad system? Probably not, but 
you know, are there differences between the two? And what are those differences worth to you? Right. Is it worth the, twice the price? Budget friendly for a reason. So yep. hope that helps, Phil. Uh, I think we go back to you, Guy, for your right. second question. This is from Mike. It says, hey, guys, and this is almost what we were just talking about. Hey, guys, can you explain why tool companies produce slash sell multiple tool brands? The latest I've noticed is the South Bend tool line that Grizzly is distrib distributing. It looks very similar to the Grizzly line of tools with a new paint job. I'm sure they are not the only company with this practice. What gives? As a follow-up, as someone only a few years into the hobby, which single brand would each of you select if you were starting a new shop? And I am assuming, of course, Guy's answer would be Powermatic. Thanks for the episodes. Really enjoy them. Mike, um, so I'll answer the second question first. Yes, I'm going to recommend Powermatic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the differences between is like the South Bend that Grizzly is, is distributing. Is in, it has in distribution. That's the key word. It's in distribution. Grizzly is not in distribution. You cannot buy it at a retail store. You cannot buy it from a wholesale distributor. The only way you can get something that is Grizzly branded is to buy it direct from Grizzly. They have mm -hmm. the ShopFox yep. line of tools and the South Bend line of tools are different paint jobs, the exact same tool, but those tools are available from other retailers and are available through wholesale distribution. Mm, That's yeah. why they make them. Mm -hmm. They don't want to come. They don't want to compete against themselves in the retail space. So they rebrand their tools so they, they can get a larger market share mm. without directly competing with one another. I think. Yeah. So th that's Grizzly's take on it. There's a lot of other manufacturers that do. So uh, here's, a, here's a good example. Look at a 15-inch planer. Mm -hmm. You look at a 15-inch planer from Grizzly, from Jet to Powermatic to Bailey to whoever, and they all look almost exactly the same. And we've talked about this before. Is it the same tool? Yes and no. Right. So Powermatic will have a set of specifications or standards that the different surfaces and the different castings and stuff like that, they'll have different tolerances than let's say Grizzly does. Mm -hmm. So Grizzly buys the ones that are, and I'm not, I'm not knocking Grizzly because I love Grizzly. I've owned Grizzly tools. We use a lot of Grizzly at work. I'm don't, please don't take it that way. I'm knocking Grizzly. However, that's why it's less expensive. Yep. Because they're using the lesser spec pieces that come off the assembly line. Well, Powermatic is buying the higher spec ones. So the surfaces mm -hmm. are going to be flatter, things like that. That's what it is. And do you think that Grizzly keeps the prices down a little bit because they sell to you directly? Yes, because they don't go through distribution. They can keep the prices down. They cut out the middleman. So if, if you're buying a, uh, anything from a retailer, let's say you're buying a coffee mug from a retailer, it's gone from the manufacturer to a distribution warehouse. That distribution warehouse has, has salespeople that go out and sell it to the retailers. 
Right. That's so you've got a middleman in there. Grizzly is selling direct to the public so they can keep the prices low and maximize their profit margin. Right. I, I hope that helps a little bit, Mike. And and I do like Powermatic for a couple of reasons. First of all, and I will say this, they are one of my sponsors. So I get very large discounts on the equipment that I get from them. Uh, they have paid me for doing reviews and such of their equipment. They have given me equipment for free. And I will say that on the air. Um, There's nothing wrong with it's fine. Yeah. So, but I, but I do. And the, one of the reasons I went after them, I went after them. They did not come after me mm-hmm. was because I, the, the, the first power piece of power manic equipment I paid for, I really liked it. I said, I am buying, I'm getting more of this stuff. I really want them to be in with me on this. And it, it took a long time because all they wanted, they kept saying, no, we deal with the wood whisperer. Mark Spagnuolo is our guy. And that was it. And that was the end of it. So yeah. things changed a little bit. And um, I've had a good relationship with Powermatic. And I, I'm very glad I have because their tools are very, very good. They're more expensive, yes, but they are good tools. So, yeah. Any well, I got nothing to add. <laughs> I've got nothing to add. Well, uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, I, I have an, a Hammer A331. Mm-hmm. wonderful tool. I was just talking with one of my friends, Randy Child, and he's like, how do you like the hammer? I was like, I love it. And he's like, I'm thinking about getting the Felder AD941. That machine is a $14,000 machine. Mm-hmm. My machine is a $5,000 machine. Mm-hmm. It's made by the same company, mm-hmm. Felder Group. But it it is leaps and bounds i mean it has ridiculous features on it like digital readouts and all like it's just crazy all right it's a ridiculous machine but he thinks that for the fourteen thousand dollars it's worth every penny and by the way i think it's fourteen thousand dollars that's the vegas floor model that he bought (laughs) that's not even the brand new machine that's how expensive these machines are but again that's an industrial quality machine exactly The, the hammer is a is more of a uh, a hobbyist hobby exactly right so these these companies are targeting different markets they're very similar machines but they're not quite similar kind of like you said they will get you where you need to go but you know he's he's a cabinet maker and a furniture maker who's running his machines every day eight to ten hours a day he needs that so just something to consider you know, the different lines are targeting different, different markets. Mm-hmm. That's all I can add. Yeah, I can't, you guys have already covered everything a couple mm-hmm. times and Sorry, I don't, Sean. Oh, that's all right. Ain't nothing I can bad. add. I don't want to repeat bad. anything that's already been said. So, uh, I will reserve judgment, but I will say we, you didn't answer the second question. Oh, what was the second yeah. question? You were not Which listening. single brand would each of you select if you were starting a new show? I don't think you can choose a single brand. Single yeah, brand, because Saw Stop only makes table saws. <laughs> well, take Saw Stop out of the equation. I I would love then to take have, Powermatic out of the equation. <laughs> I I would love to have a Powermatic bandsaw and a Powermatic drill press and a Powermatic <laughs> for free. I would I would take the drill press, but I wouldn't. It's a drill press. 
That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of money for a drill press, but man, it is a nice drill press. You have a Powermatic drill press, don't you, guy? No. Oh, you don't? I for some reason no. I thought you did. Nope. I have a. I love that bandsaw though. I have a thirteen-inch Steel City. Yeah. Drill press. Yeah, if you need holes, you can get holes drilled cheaper than that. Yeah, I, I agree. Still, you know, still covet it. So, and and that in your bandsaw. Guy. I yeah, love I, lo- I really love I, the I, I would love to have that band. That's song. a great band song. All right, so if we pick one brand, you're one brand. Yeah, <sighs> that's hard. I, one brand. All right. I, no, I, I guess I. No, 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 go, not one brand. I guess I'd go probably mostly Paramatic then, because I, I. Well, because I want their tools. <laughs> I'm not going to say the same thing you all. So I'll say Felder. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, I can get everything I need from them. I just need a bigger shop so that I can get a slider. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Steve Live just got a, a month or so back. Oh, a, I don't really, know how the hell he fit that into his career. I don't either, but you know what? More props <laughs> to him, man. That thing yeah. is, a, is beautiful. Gigantic, yes. Yeah. Yeah. SL1800, I think, is his. his yeah. His, uh, yeah, Steve is awesome. He's been around for a long time. SL1800 on Instagram. Um yeah, he got a big slider. I, yeah, He's he hilarious. got a full ten foot throw slider, and he he, he He's got, got a rid of like garage. Half, yeah, he got rid of half the tools in his shop just so he could fit it in there. <laughs> God bless him. I love him. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, he goes all out. The dude is yeah, dude, he's, he's funny. He's funny guy. Yeah. Yep. So I guess I would choose Felder, um, just because you all have already picked both. You all picked Powermatic. He's being very original. Well, uh, I, I don't know. Oh, I mean, sh- it's, it's <laughs> you want me to say I don't have a single Powermatic tool. I wish I did. Buy one. I I yeah, but I got tools at work. Well, there you go. Not as well as Powermatic. I know. I yeah, know. you're not See, producing. I, I went. I went the budget route and got a Grizzly bandsaw, and it's I, it's a great it's bandsaw. Fine. Yeah, I and look it. look at it. the furniture you're producing. So I don't think you need a Powermatic. No, I. I it, this is not that the question was if you had you could okay it wasn't you know you you know you had to choose based on budget and and you know, you know spouse and you know all these things and factors that come into no well, budget shouldn't was, come into play for you because you're a you're a rocket scientist whatever guys you got all that whatever rocket scientist he's a rocket engine listen we're moving on yep we are <laughs> okay we're moving on who's got the next question Sean yep. All right, this is from John. Great show, guys. Been listening a while, and I've heard them all. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for sharing your experience. Hoping you can give me some ideas for a potential workaround. I recently made a mitered box out of a nice piece of cherry with continuous grain running around the sides. I rabbited the inside edges of the top and the bottom and then used those rabbits to seed in some quarter-inch Baltic birch plywood veneered with babinga and wingay. Nice. I'm relatively... Yeah, it is. That's a good combo. I'm a relatively new woodworker, but I think they turned out pretty nice. After the glue dried, I noticed that I had slightly undersized one of the rebated panels on two of the ends. So in other words, it's it's not long enough. It's too short. The width is fine. Length is not. Uh, Maybe somewhere between a 32nd and a 64th. As this is on the outward face of the box, what are some alternatives for closing the gap? The rest of the box looks pretty nice, and I'm afraid to goof it up with a sloppy patch job. Any suggestions? Thanks again, guys, uh, for the great work. So John sent a picture, and it turns out, from what I gather, he made the panel, and it is—it looks to be about 
in between, like you said, a 32nd and a 64th too short. The width is fine. It's just too short. That's a tough one. It's a veneered panel. It's the outward face, in my opinion. And we've seen God do this a million times and it looks amazing is I would center that panel, glue it in, and then do an inlay around the edge of the, of the panel mm-hmm. with some stripping of, you know, a, a contrasting wood or, or something like that. I'm not sure how you would fix that panel other than remake it uh, with it being a veneered panel. I think an inlay of sorts, some stringing inlay around that, the uh, the inside of the box using a, you know, like a, a trim router with a small bit, you know, like an eighth inch bit or something like that. I think that's probably going to be about your only option, John. I saw the, the, the panel and it would be a little difficult to, to fix that and you not notice it, especially with it being the outward face. Um, so my vote is going to be inlay or make a new panel. Unfortunately, inlay will look nice. And you said that you're, uh, uh, relatively new to woodworking. I think is what I heard in here. Um, uh, but if you're not, yeah, if you've not tried this before, it's a great exercise. Like we said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, do you guys have any other tricks that that John can use to uh, to fix a, a veneer panel that's too short? Epoxy. No, I'm kidding. Um, inlay sounds great. I would probably do that. Guy, I've I've built that box five thousand times, and maybe not that many. Four thousand. <laughs> maybe four thousand, and you're never going to get that top panel exact. That's why I always do a string inlay. Typically in a box, a small box, it's a sixteenth of an inch. And I use a, a just a router and an edge guide, and I'm just very careful. And I go around it, and I put a sixteenth of an inch groove about an eighth of an inch deep all the way around the top because I know I'd, I'm never going to get it right. And I do the, the, the Baltic birch veneered. I usually do MDF for the top, but I, I, I've done that a bunch of times and like i said i usually just do the string inlay like Mm -hmm. sean suggested if you don't do that i really don't know what you can do other than that yeah to fill to fill that in um you can try to remake the top and have that panel fit in there precisely which while difficult is not impossible yeah but he's already got a beautiful piece I, yeah. I i just sort of feel like just the inlay is just it's not going to take away from the piece at all no it's the, the it's begging for inlay is what it is yeah and i i do have a video on hmm. my youtube channel and i i think it's just called making a basic box or something like that and yeah. i and i and i show where i do a a, a top with the with the inlay stringing around the, the the panel on top yeah so there you go we no i already answered okay String, so let's see if you wanted to add anything else okay cool um you know you you could in the future it, it's harder to do on a veneered panel but you can make the make the lid if it were solid wood a little bit longer than use a shooting board to mm, to yeah. true it up and snug it in but with the veneer a veneered panel that's going to be a little bit more difficult. You can still use a shooting board. And- I didn't say you couldn't. I said it's going to be more yeah. difficult because then you got the risk of tearing that veneer up. Hmm. If you go sharp, take it slow, you could do it. Yeah. Um, but it's that's tough to do 
to make a, a panel like that perfectly sized without doing some hand tool work on it or, you know, some finessing maybe at a table saw to trim off a tiny bit at a time until it's a perfect fit. Yeah. Yeah. And then take a hammer to it done. and smash it in. It can be done. It's just going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. You could taper it. Um, no, you couldn't really taper it. If it was solid, you could taper it. Anyways, even that's a bad idea because it's expansion. Uh, all I can say is string and lay. <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah. just that. String and lay and then work on the next one to test a fit, test a fit, test a fit until you get it just right. So hope yep. that helps. Who's got the next one here? Is that is that guy? No, I, wait a minute. No, I got the last one because guys, we got the yeah. last one. All right, mm-hmm. we. And this is from Ken. How would you get rid of bandsaw marks from thin shop made veneers that are less than an eighth of an inch thick, but still come out with a consistent thickness? I don't have a drum sander yet. Was thinking of a sled with the veneer stuck down with double sided tape in the planer. Just afraid it will explode under the planer knives. I've tried a hand plane to no avail. I have an old Inca jointer planer with a tersa head. Any help would be very cool. P.S. Love the podcast, Ken. Um, I would, uh, uh, I'll go around and, you know, because I've got about two or three things that you could try, but I'll go around. I'll just talk about one. First, I, I wouldn't use double stick tape, double sided tape. And I think the reason why. Um, I wouldn't do that is because, you know, if there's for any reason, any edge that's not completely stuck on, um, it's going to be uneven going through the planer on that sled. Secondly, you got to get the stuff off of the planer sled. And I think if you've got that, then I think kind of you might have issues trying to get it off. What I've seen and I think Michael Fortune does this. I'm not exactly sure, but the, for some reason, his name rings a bell with this technique, is making a sled with thin stops on either side that are just an eighth of an inch or quarter of an inch. I, I'm not exactly sure how thin, but um, stops on either side, uh, thinner or shorter. The stops are shorter than the actual length of your veneer. And what it does is when it goes through the planer, um, it's being pushed down and wedged into the sled. Uh, I don't know if I'm giving a good enough visual through through my words, but uh, I've seen folks do that. I Explain that again. Is it so a, just a planer sled with stops on a, it? It's a planer sled with stops on the end, the length a quarter of an inch less than or an eighth of an inch. I can't remember. You'll oh, have to look it up. So it right? wedges in there. Right, exactly. And so it doesn't pop up and get eaten up by the by the planer planer head. Am I making sense there? Yeah, you're wedging it in there. It's kind of like when you sometimes cut like a baseboard or something and you get a little a little too long and then you push it in there and then it wedges in there and it compresses down and makes it a tight fit. Yes. Exactly. Yep. That's the one method that I've known folks or I've seen folks use. And I think Michael Fortune wrote about it in Fine Woodworking Magazine. Now, did he do that? You said he did that with thin pieces? Yes. Yes. Thin huh. veneer. Wow. Well, I mean, shops on veneer. So eighth of an inch, three thirty second, that sort of thing. Um, what, do you, what, what, what do you got, guy? About the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
if you don't have a drum sander, I would use a sled on the planer, exactly as you described it. Yeah. Now, I think the drum sander is probably the safest and the preferred yep. method. And I think that's a method that we all use, correct? Yep. Um, Sean? I, I, I don't have anything to add to it, I guess is what I'm saying. It's just, it is what it is. And you have very few tools that can do that type of work. Yeah. So if you don't have a drum sander, your next logical thing as far as a power tool goes is the uh, thickness planer. planer. Yeah. Thickness planer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sean? Nope, that's it. I mean, there's no, yeah. you have, you really only have like, well, yeah, I'm not going to repeat what Guy said. All you have is the planer. And when yeah. you do make the passes, they better be light passes. Oh, yeah. Light. Very light. Otherwise, it's going to turn into a bunch of... uh exploded pieces now another technique and i don't know if this is from uh patrick edwards or i can't one of these um sort of reproduction furniture reproduction makers is uh taking a piece of mdf and using hide glue like hot hide glue and uh basically just sticking it on there and then running it through the planer and then afterwards, using a heat gun to melt the glue, you can take it off. And then if it's on like a drawer front or something like that, and you still got glue on it, put a little more glue on it and hammer veneer it right back onto the drawer front. That's, uh, I can't, I, maybe it was Patrick Edwards. I, I, I can't remember. I, we're kind of, it, it, doesn't, anyway. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it's just a method that, I, that I've, I've read about. I think it was on his blog. Um, using hot hide glue for uh, going through the planer. So, all right, I think that's it. And let's go to since we started with Guy. Let's go to Sean. What do you got going on in the shop, Sean? Nothing. Uh, I'm still <laughs> in the uh, like I mentioned last episode. I'm probably not going to be out there for a month. I'm going to working on some home remodeling type stuff. Uh, in the process of replacing four faucets, five faucets. And that's been only work that I can do on the weekend, a little bit at night, but you don't want to start replacing a faucet at night and not get it done and, and all yeah. that. So that's mainly a weekend gig and it's, uh, it's not what, fun. What was wrong with your faucets before? Or why are you deciding to change them? Because I don't like to look at the old ones and they're old and, oh, okay. you know, just reason just regular reasons why people upgrade there's yeah updating upgrading yeah got yeah it. yep that's uh so i'm gonna be out of the shop for probably the next i'd say the next episode i won't have any updates either and then after that hopefully i'll be out there making some sawdust but uh that's that's what i've got going on is a few things here and there in the house nothing fun what about you guy pretty much the same thing not doing much in the shop this week been at work just building stuff, building stuff, building stuff. It just it just never ends. Building a lot of bookcases. I'm working on some slab tables today. I think I got like five projects going on right now. Mm. It, just, it, it just all blends together. Still working on my desk. Hopefully I'll have that done in about three or four weeks. I'm hoping. Yeah. But that's about it. You got all the panels veneered, I believe, right? Uh, I haven't done the top yet. Okay. I've got the, the, the base units done. There's just a lot of detail work that has to be done on that stuff before I glue them up. Yeah. Um, and I'm almost ready to do a glue up of the base. 
So hopefully this weekend I'll have that done. No, I don't. I won't be able to this weekend. I'll be out of town. Where are you going? Alabama. <laughs> You're a fun. No, seriously, where are you going this weekend? Alabama. Are you really? Huntsville. Yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. So before the show, Guy has been teasing me that he's going to come to my house and. St- well, no, you said I could have it. <laughs> you, you'll have to pry it away from my wife's hands. Um, the uh, the table that I just made. So, what is a perfect segue into what I'm doing? Look at that. Uh, no, I just finished the round extension table that I've been working on the last couple months. Finally got it done. My wife's happy about that because we've been using a card table as our kitchen table. So, she's really happy about that. That was. A pretty fun, you know, those equalizer slides, guy. They they're really nice. They work yeah. excellent, and very happy that you gave me that recommendation in terms of those uh, those slides. And then um, finally got my dust collector in. Finally came in. Had to wait two months for it, but it's finally here, and I've got to assemble that. It's a little rector set that you got to put together. <laughs> so. All right. Uh, I think that wraps up this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through our Instagram page at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, my Instagram, at Guy's Woodshop. Nice. And Sean, where can we find you? At Simple Cove and simplecove.com, where you can share all of your fantastic projects. Great. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. See ya. See ya. Bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.